right, here we are. Here we are. Welcome back. Welcome back. Episode 48. Yeah. Look at that. Yep. Are we still, is this still midlife crisis time? Like what's, what, what actually constitutes, well, maybe not midlife crisis, just midlife. What, 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 what is midlife? I don't know. I don't know. That's pretty, uh, existential. Yeah. Pretty existential stuff to start with. Yeah. Yeah. To start this. Yeah. Hi, I'm Ollie. Oh yeah. Right. And I'm Scott. That's Scott. That's me. This is science in between. It is. And I, Scott, I will say that I was, uh, listening, uh, to episode 47, and thinking mm. about uh, how we laid out PCK last time, yep. And I thought maybe we could we could start by you know I don't know uh, dialing it back a little bit. I don't know, <laughs> maybe, maybe putting it in context because I think some yeah. people listen, listening to that episode would just think that uh, you and, and and me to maybe a lesser degree, but mostly uh, me, yeah. That we that we both hold this like visceral hatred for yeah. PCK. That I'm and, a hater. You're a hater, and 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 I don't yeah, know if that's haters got to hate. So well, haters have to hate. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like it when you say it that way. It sounds much whiter when you say it that way. Haters, haters, haters got to hate. They, they, that's what they do. They've got to. Yeah. Yes, sir. Got no choice. So, uh, PCK. So, if you if you haven't listened to episode forty-seven, um, you know, uh, do that. Stop this and go listen to that, and then, um. Here, let's let's talk about pedagogical content knowledge a little bit before we jump into all of its, you know, spawn, the spawn yeah. of PCK. Spawn, yeah. And this is not like the image character drawn by yeah. Todd McFarlane with little feet and lots of flowing capes and chains. I, I felt like you were going to go there. And we get to, yeah, we could nerd out on that if you want to. Because well, I feel like there, that could be show art if we did show art. That would be. Yeah. Cool. There's a whole spawn universe coming out. Like, did you know that? In film. It, yeah, yeah, there's a whole. Well, they, thing. well, there have been a couple films already, right? They haven't been very good. I agree. That doesn't yeah. mean they don't exist. Yeah. All, All right, right, PCK. Let's PCK. do that. Not comics. That, uh, yeah, yeah we, we comics. we'll avoid the spawn rabbit hole. If, we would lose a lot of our huge following if yes. we went down the spawn rabbit. Or we could gain some new ones. Uh, well, new, but uh, they'd followers. have to be listening because yeah. up until mm-hmm. now, if they were listening along, they're like, "This is not for me. I'm into comics and and specifically comics from the '80s, where they're right weird demonic characters. You and your logic. You and your logic. All right. So, do you want to you want to start us off with uh, some PCK? Like, like because I know you, sure. you're rust. You you are wrestling with this on a lot a a much broader scale conceptually right um yeah yeah you you don't you don't care as much about this as i do and i don't mean that in a bad way no 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 i get it i don't take that offensively at all but i but i care a lot in the sense of the 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 uh movie with rosamund pike which we haven't talked about but no that's we could okay so i care a lot um yeah. Okay. So brief revisitation of pedagogical content knowledge for those, as Ollie said, if you didn't listen to the last episode, go back and listen to that where I rant a bit. Um, but basically Lee Shulman, uh, professor at Stanford in the eighties writes a paper that's really pretty, it's basically a polemic. It's an argument. It's a rhetorical piece, a conceptual piece where he says, Hey, you know, let's let's really think about what it means to know how to teach, and in that, um, and what knowledge growth and teaching means, and in that, he names this, you know, what becomes a world-shaking concept, which is pedagogical content knowledge, and basically, it means the knowledge that teachers have about the domain, but in the context of how to teach it. So. It's not strictly speaking, knowing physics, um, and it's also not knowing how to teach. It's knowing how to teach physics. And that right. is, a, it's a very subtle distinction and it's a really interesting, thoughtful and nuanced argument. And I think he, he made it for all sorts of historical reasons in the context in which he made that argument. There was a lot of, you know, push towards give, giving teachers a lot of content knowledge as, the, as a foundation for them becoming good teachers. And he was saying, you know, we got to be careful about this. It's not just, you know, (laughs) having high school teachers taking lots of four and 500 level physics courses is not going to make them better teachers. Right. 
Um, and so, but the question is why, because it seems like it should like, Oh, well, if I know more physics, then I'm going to be a better teacher. Um, but it turns out that, that, you know, going back to many things that we've talked about before, that teaching is not just an exchange of information and having the person right. giving the information out, having more information doesn't make them a better teacher. So there's a fundamental model there that he's pushing against. And I think this is the thing that we both see as the powerful piece of what he did, right? Is saying, you know, it's not just about content knowledge and having more content knowledge doesn't, doesn't make yeah. you necessarily a better teacher and also that teaching teaching um practices are not all entirely generic right there right. are some teaching practices that are domain specific and i think both of those things were really important about what he did with this nuance of pck so i think rhetorically it was really powerful right and i think and i don't want to put words in your mouth but i think that if if that's where it ended, right? If it was just that, if it was just, hey, folks, here's this construct, here's this concept, and we're going to throw this out there and let's talk about this. Let's talk about how we prepare teachers. Let's talk about the requisite, you know, skill set that teachers need to have. And, and I think that you would probably be okay with that, right? I would think you'd probably be like, because I mean, up until then, I think that people felt like, you know, because again, in the early, you know, 80s, um, there were lots of people who felt like if you just had lots of content, you were going to be a successful science teacher, right? Right. And like, uh, and that we could pull somebody who had a PhD in biology and just throw them into like a, a middle school biology class, and voila, they'll be the best they'll, teacher in the world. They'll do it. Yeah, they'll do it. And I don't. I think we both know that that's not the case. But I, I think that what has happened to this concept of PCK is that it has been so systematized and it mm -hmm. has taken over and become this this thing this this i don't know this tool and 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 i don't mean tool in a in in a good way i mean tool in a right. really bad way that has you know lodged itself into all the things we do in teacher education yeah you know i mean i think it's become maybe a, a i don't know if this is the right term for it either but it's it's a maybe a dogma but oh I think yeah yeah, but I, I think, think part of what happened here is like <clears throat> what we have to see is where that historically, where that rhetorical argument that Schulman made lands, right? So this put, let's go back a second to our series about learning theory, and we're not going to go mm -hmm. in depth into that. It's a fantastic set of- It's, it's awesome. It's I groundbreaking. Mean, I mean- it, 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 I was listening. It brought me to tears. Yeah. Many people have contacted us and said, I wept- through those episodes. They were so mm -hmm. powerful. I, you know, they're like the sitting in the driveway episodes they talk about in NPR, where you pull your car in after you've been driving for 14 hours or whatever. And you just like, I still can't get out of the car because I have yeah. to hear the end of this episode. But Scott and Ollie are talking about learning. Theory. Oh my God. It's so powerful. Anyway. So uh, <laughs> if you listen to all that nonsense about learning theory, and you're still one, here. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> one of the things you may recall is that the mid eighties is when there is this sort of beginning of this uh, shift towards sociocultural theories of right. learning. That said, the dominant paradigm is conceptual change and the associated cognitive theories. So, so Shulman puts out this idea of pedagogical content knowledge. And, and I think um, what it is like is it's like a crystallization. So what happens is he puts this idea in place in in the zeitgeist of the time and it get and people take it up and say okay so this is knowledge so if it's knowledge then then it's got to there's got to be a structure to it because that's how sure. concepts work and so what we needed to do is investigate the structure of this knowledge um, by developing instruments that measure it and so that that's a very of the time that it is very sensible um, and aligned with those learning theories so so they so if that rhetorical argument had been made now that that entire pedagogical content knowledge construct may have ended up being structured much more around practice because that's yeah. much more the way that we think about teaching and learning now but that's not the way people were thinking about teaching and learning at that time they talked about skills and they talked about process um, but they didn't talk about practice and again this seems like we're being we talking about practice yeah we do Right. No, that's a that's yeah. a quote from Alan Iverson. Oh, <laughs> practice, practice. Oh, that that's a that's a quote from Ted Lasso. <laughs> right. <laughs> Alan Iverson into Ted Lasso. Um, 
practice. Yeah, and I, I, and I think that's probably where where we both have have challenges. Is that it's a it's so focused on knowledge and measuring knowledge, and that it it's it really doesn't talk about practice or how that stuff gets enacted in the practice, especially in some sort of you know classroom setting in which we're trying to I don't know foster a you know classroom community or an environment mm-hmm. in which you know discussion is happening because it's because we people could possess that knowledge could be, people could possess the knowledge of of content could possess the knowledge of what what it means to be a good teacher right mm-hmm. the, but they may not be able to put that stuff into practice right and that's right. and yeah. actually there's a lot of research to show that that's actually the case that you know that there are I, this is something i blogged about a, a, a few years ago but um they looked at college uh science teachers and they talked about active learning and how active learning is this important concept but then when they went to their classes and observed them in classroom settings they few of them actually put those practices into their classroom right. so they knew they knew what good teaching was they had they possessed the knowledge of it but they didn't put it into practice. And right. So, so, so let me, let me take that a little bit, take it and turn it. Right. All right. Because um, I think this is a, this is another like fundamental difference between thinking about learning a, and knowing as something that is independent of context and learning and knowing that is in context. Right. And so when we say things like they know it, but when you watch them do the thing where they're supposed to be able to do it, they can't use that stuff to me. As a, as a sociocultural theorist, I say, well, that means they didn't know it. Um, it doesn't mean that they, it means that in one context, they knew one thing and in another context, they knew another thing. And we think those things are, are associated or linked to each other or are the same thing. But in fact, they're not. They're different knowings. And so I think that's what's so fundamentally frustrating for me about pedagogical content knowledge is there's this idea that I'm going to measure it. And it's going to tell me something about practice. And then I'm going to go watch their practice and see if it appears. And it's like, well, why, why are you measuring it separate from the practice? Yeah. The practice is where you know whether they know it. And if they're not doing it in the practice, if they can score it on an exam, like what does that, how does that help yeah. us? It, it, so that's the fundamental tension I have. And then, you know, today we'll talk about, well, what then happened is you had to, because what happens is you say, oh, I'm going to measure pedagogical content knowledge and it doesn't show up in practice. And they say, well, that's probably because we don't understand pedagogical content knowledge at a small enough, uh, small enough grain size. So we're going to start breaking it down into pieces. Yeah. And then that will help us say, oh, now we can see it in practice. And it turns out, no, what that really just does is make pedagogical content knowledge more complicated. And then every time it gets more complicated, they say, well, we need to make it a little more complicated so we can understand in practice because practice is very complicated. But then we can develop really cool Venn diagrams and graphs, Scott. Mm -hmm. And that's really the point. That's really, I mean, nobody makes diagrams like, um, like pedagogical content knowledge people. I mean, I, I really, I'm really, they, they do make, you know, there's lots of circles and lots of arrows between the circles and they're sometimes like links. Be- I mean, they're they they're mind mapping people, right? You know? Well, it was was funny is this morning before we got on, I was uh, just looking through some things to prepare for our discussion, and I was wow, uh, I was looking at the different graphics, and I came across this like short little video on TPAC, which we'll talk about in a second, mm-hmm. and. Uh, the speaker was like talking about how, you know, it's often th- uh, represented as a Venn diagram, but she prefers it as a, uh, as a, as a bullet, like a, as a bullseye. Like, and mm, I was like, yep. well, and so she had a whole mm. reconceptualization of it, you know, as a bullseye. And I'm like, really? That's just, this, this sounds like a con- the consensus model. Right. And was, it's just, was this the consensus model that you're referring to? Do you remember? Uh, I don't, I don't know if she, they use that term, okay. but uh, it was, it was just moving the deck chairs around, you know, that's, yeah. that's all it was. Yeah. Well, there was the, the reason I refer to that is there was an is a, there was a, there was a big conference that got together a bunch of for researchers. TPAC. No, no. For P, PCK. PCK. Oh. And the purpose of that big conference was to develop what they called the consensus model, which was sort of essentially a diagram that all the people in the conference 
instead of each making their own idiosyncratic diagram that said, like, here's how I view TPAC, this was an effort by a group of scholars in the pedagogical content uh, knowledge community to develop what they essentially said, this is the shared model. So this is like the one ring to rule them all. Um, And it is a bullseye. Um, So I wonder, you know, we'll we'll definitely find a picture for show notes, but... Sure. But um, but that was the thing, right? That was a uh, developing this this consensus model was something that you know had this funded um, funded conference where they brought scholars from all over the world to like talk about pedagogical content knowledge. So, so let let me before we jump in, let let me just get that right. So they brought people from all over the world to talk about the best way to represent it. Yeah, well, I mean, the representation is part of it, right? So sure. p- part of it was to to what goes into the represent, representation, which is the conceptualization, right? Yeah. So all, what are all the pieces? What are all the parts? How do we represent that in a way that we all sort of agree represents our notions? So I don't want to, you know, I don't want to go ahead and say it. it. No, you were gonna po- you're gonna poo poo it. <laughs> I'm, I'm not gonna. No, you were poo pooing it. I was I defending was it. Yeah. You were poo pooing. I was poo pooing. No poo poo here. Um, yeah. But I, but I was, you know, I do think, um, you know, the representation was part of it, and and um, and you know that that was, uh, yeah, it's interesting to think about. Like that, that was a pretty massive outlay of human um, and resources, ca- you know, human mm-hmm. capital and resources to get a group of people together to, to develop this consensus model. So, um, yeah. So I, I mean, I think this tension of, and and I think now we can maybe transition into the, into the other spawn, and you can take the lead on that in a, you know, here in a second with with your favorite, um, and probably the first real construct to come post, uh, PCK. Sure. But um, but the, but I do think there, this is what we see. The pattern that we see in this universe, um, is that practice is really complicated and contextual, and these measures, PCK measures or whatever kind of CK measures there are, you know, acronym measures there are, they are trying to increasingly complexify their model so that it better represents the complexity of practice. Like that's, that's what they, my sense is that's what they're trying to accomplish. They're saying, Hey, look, practice is really complicated. Well, what are the kinds of things that teachers need to know to know about the complexity? Well, there's this part and this part and this part and this part. And then and then you try to measure it and you say, OK, well, we've measured it, but we don't we're not getting a clear sense of like when, when they know to back to your point, when they know it here, that they know it here. So what does that mean? Well, it means that we don't understand it well enough. So let's break down that model further until we have more complexity that will align with the complexity. Um, and it you know, we can talk about this after you talk about um, TPAC, but, um, but I think it, 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 I think we can talk about that in terms of the way that science thinks about, for example, systems, um, and, and why systems are different than, um, than non-system phenomena. So we'll come back to that, I think in a minute, but I think there are analogies there that help us understand why, why this approach is not necessarily going to be productive for understanding the context we're trying to understand. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I'm just I, I I'm I'm just remarking at your you're you're a little bit more measured today, Scott, and I appreciate that. Yeah. I t- I, well, you know, in fairness, I did uh, recognize that sometimes I I got a little ranty last time, um, and it probably didn't didn't help that I started talking about the PCK swear jar thing. Um, so mm. then it you know it sort of went downhill from there. So I am trying to. I think what I've done since we talked last is really tried to take a step back and say do some thinking about what it is that that um, I think about this model and, and why I have a strong reaction to it and what it is that frustrates me about it. Um, and so I think that's what I'm trying to communicate isn't, um, you know, not that haters got to hate and not that I have any hate for people who do this work, but trying to understand <clears throat> my frustration with it and, and what I think, um, you know, is the productive alternative. Yeah. And I think the other part is, I, I think that the, you connect the dots with a cognitive approach to learning and mm. see the negative outcomes of that, because it's not just, it's not just PCK as this like isolated concept over here. It's PCK being, you know, part of a, this larger way of seeing the world that you think has some real negative outcomes, real negative applications and on, on society, 
you mm-hmm. know, and, yeah. and I, I appreciate that. Um, um, so I don't mean to dismiss it or to like call you a, like a naysayer or a hater or anything like that. No, I, I think but I, I call myself a hater. So I know what, but, but I'm also trying to like, you know, uh, point out the you know positives of your uh, approach, because I, I think I share it. It's just that I, I don't get lost in that, you know, I, I don't want to say doom and gloom, but there is some of doom and gloom there mm-hmm. because, you know, if, if that's how, you know, the educational community is approaching, you know, learning and, and people then you see, you know, the dominoes falling. And I mean, it goes to like, like really from, from a perspective, it almost like goes to eugenics, right? Like, it's <laughs> almost like, 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 right. Right. I mean, it's not that like you, you connect the dots to, from, you know, cognitive approach to learning to, you know, IQ to eugenics, right? Like, it's not that much of a, you know, well, you, you just did that. I don't know. If- <laughs> I, I know, but I, but I, but I think that like, I don't think it's that much of a stretch for you. Like, I don't think like, well, I don't know like, if I'd, I, if I might quite that radical a place, but, um, but I certainly see that um, there are consequences um, for our educational systems sure. at all levels. And as a result, there are consequences for human beings um, and those consequences are um, tied up, you know, again, this goes back to, to fundamental ideas about when, when you build whole systems on models and those models are inequitable or, or um, right. oppressive, Bi- biased, way, op- oppressive, whatever, you know, you wanna, yeah. whatever sure. word you want to choose for that, then those systems have those things built into them. And yeah. then, and then you have a problem because dismantling those systems is very, very difficult. Um, and so, when you build testing and assessment systems that are built on notions of what learning means, and those assessment systems drive how the educational systems work, then you've set up systems that are fundamentally inequitable, um, and that's. Yeah, that's bad. And I, I don't know if that's exactly IQ to eugenics, but it's certainly um, a lot of uh, injustice for people that already were, were getting plenty of injustice. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> All right. So let's 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 talk about. T-Pac. <laughs> yeah, because that's happy. Yeah, let's talk about some happy stuff. T-Pac. So T-Pac. Uh, <laughs> hey, T-Pac. You you can't see uh, nope. Scott doing the T-Pac dance, yep. but I can, and it is it is something special. Um, if I didn't have yeah, if I didn't already have a joy, <laughs> that would be it. Um, so uh, T-Pac. So what what happens in like 2006? So we're talking like a good 20 years down the road after Schulman uh, introduces PCK is these two researchers, uh, Mishra and Kohler, working out of Michigan State, um, Mm -hmm. introduced this third construct, third domain that needs to be, uh, teachers need to have, and that's the idea of technological knowledge. So Mm -hmm. it's not enough to just have content knowledge and pedagogical knowledge, that there's also technological knowledge. And, And so you're thinking in 2006, this is when, you know, um, more one-to-one computers are happening. A lot more um, impacts of the internet are happening in classrooms, and so they uh, they are you know technology educational technology people, and they're like, hey, in order for you know a teacher to be successful in the 21st century, they also have to have a a, a knowledge of what uh, technology can bring to the classroom, and then. And that's where the concept of TPAC comes in, which is, you know, sort of PCK with a T added onto it. It's, it's not just enough to know, you know, how to teach your content. It's also how to use technology to teach your content. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the T, TPAC comes in. And so really there's, you know, all of the overlapping, you know, this is where the, 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 the uh, Venn diagram comes in is that it really recognizes that there's not just three isolated pieces of knowledge there, you know, piece, you know, pedagogical knowledge, content knowledge, technological knowledge. There's actually, you know, four additional ones, right? So there's that pedagogical content knowledge, PCK, then there's technological content knowledge. So like the technology that te- that people in the field use. So like what, like an astronomer you would use. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's technological pedagogical knowledge, which is the general technology that anyone would use to teach you know like an lms that's like 
you know, uh, learning management system is content neutral. Like it does, it can, it does, it's not specific to any one content. So understanding how to use an LMS would fall maybe more into that technological pedagogical knowledge. And then the overlap right there where all three of those the, domains the center of the bullseye center of the bullseye is the technological pedagogical content knowledge. And that's the thing we have to work on developing with our, our teachers in order for them to integrate technology in classroom settings. Um, and so yeah. just uh, uh, before I, I want to hear more about how, how you think about this one, because I think this one pedagogical content knowledge, I feel like is a little more in my domain. And I think yeah. technological pedagogical content knowledge is a little more in your domain. So I want to hear your feelings on this um, and, and its impact on the field. Um, but I, w- I want to say just briefly, so these two guys, Mishra and Kohler are educational technologists, right? So mm-hmm. just to put them in context. So part of the reason that they're motivated to do this, I imagine, is that, um, educational technology is struggling with its identity as well, right? Which is this question of one of the core questions at sort of that time in the, in the two thousands, um, because I was in graduate school at that point, and I was actually teaching in some ed tech classes in addition to, to um, science teaching classes, was this sort of this question of should technology be integrated into the curriculum across everything, or should it be a standalone course that's about educational yeah. technology? And so I think part of what they're trying to do is they're trying to say we're important educational technology is important. And one of the ways that we can characterize that importance is by showing that there is a, there is special knowledge in the same way that Shulman said there was special, special knowledge for teaching. Um, they want to say there's special knowledge about technology. And so they were really, you know, they were really trying to position themselves as being important in teacher education and in, and in, um, and in educational context by saying we are this other kind of specialized knowledge. And I think that, you know, when you look at schools of education, um, different schools are doing this in different ways, right? Yeah. I like uh, at, at Millersville, the school I work at, we still have standalone technology classes. Um, we have a, one at the elementary level um, and another one at the secondary level, which um, w- we teach that class um, in groups with, uh, you know, it's a generic class. It's a, you know, content neutral class, but um, we also try to teach it specifically to different groups of students. So like we don't have a special section for English teachers. We don't have a special section for science teachers. Um, but we try to, when we have those teachers, um, we, we try to target the content knowledge to help them see how they can use technology specifically in those content areas. Um, yeah. So I, I guess, you know, my, my, my take on TPAC is it's, you know, it's an interesting way of, you know, t- talking about the, the ways that people make sense of technology and teaching and, but, and I've done some work around it. I've, I've actually, um, you know, I have a, a couple, a book chapter or two that I've written on with, uh, and I think I have a, um, a paper or two that I've written with TPAC where I was looking at the, the TPAC, the, the knowledge my students have and the things I've done in classes to help build TPAC. And I found that, you know, when my students had field experiences, right, when they actually mm-hmm. did things with students that they were able to, like, if I put them, I partnered them into uh, field experiences in which they were actually able to use technology to help other students learn, um, that that's where they got the um, the best growth in TPAC, right? Because they yeah. could see it's a, it's, it's different than, you know, Hey, here's a, you know, a list of technologies. That's, I mean, that's what my students want. My students, my, you know, sure. these are all future teachers. They just want, give me a laundry list of technologies that I can use with my, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't ever, I hardly ever give that. I hardly ever do that with them. I mean, I'll have them explore technologies or I have them, but I would, I try to run to getting them to um, see how they can impact classroom settings. Um, mm-hmm. And I, so I, I try to, as much as possible, focus on the practice of it with real students as much as I, I can, um, because I think that technology is always going to change, right? Like the technologies, like that right. it's, it's, so what was wild is that when I was teaching high school, 
physics. I was teaching stuff that hadn't changed in 200 years. Now I'm working in technology in which things change weekly, right? There's mm-hmm. new technologies that come out, you know, every week that, you know, that someone's like, oh, this is the next greatest thing. And it's like, uh, right. pr- probably, not. But, probably not, you know, but if I, you know, I realized pretty early on that if I focus just on technologies that, you know, if I'm working with a freshman, you know, in college, by the time they graduate, that technology might not even be around. Right. So four years down the road. So it's a um, giving them this list of technologies, you know, that will become outdated, you know, pretty quickly. And it's also also, also not how I see the world. Right. Um, and and I, I see it's the limited utility of that. Um, so there's that in terms of, you know, can I add one thing in that? Sure. Bit? Uh, so what I want to say is I so I agree with that. I think this is one of the challenges of of TPAC or or technology as a standalone course or not a standalone course, right? Is that you know, for me again, technology is a tool, right? And I yep. think educational technologists will talk about it that way, but I think um the point is that tools are as we have said so often when we go into my my list of hammers, like <clears throat> tools have a contextual use and outside of that contextual use, they're just, you know, tools. And so, so this, this idea that, you know, you're going to teach people tools um, is sort of crazy. And, and I think, yeah, there, if you look back, it's not like technology didn't exist in the 1800s. There were technologies in classrooms and, and some of that technology is one that you and I have been consistently interested in, which is space or the use of, say, furniture in a, pl- in, a in a learning space. But it was also things like chalkboards. I mean, chalkboards were a transformational technology, um, and they still are a technology that um, that show up in in whiteboard form in many in many classrooms today. Even though that was a you know an an eight nineteenth century sort of innovation, but this idea of separating out technology as something special. Um, the tools that you use are something special that are different than the practices you engage in. I think that's, that's the thing that, um, that I struggle with, with the TPAC world. Right. And I, I think I, I have that same reservation. I mean, I, you know, I go to a lot of these conferences, um, you know, most of the work I've done over the last five, 10 years has been in technology and educational technology. And so I'll go to conferences in which, you know, TPAC is the dominant, conversation you know and and if i go to a like ISTE, which is the like the big um educational technology conference for practitioners for teachers um if i go there um it's in a lot of cases it is very tool specific it is like Mm -hmm. how to use this hammer or you know i've gone to uh conferences in which you know someone's presenting on a hundred hammers that you can use and (laughs) And it's here's like a list of hammers. Here's a list of hammers. <clears throat> and then not really talking about what those hammers can do, but it's focusing just on developing technolo- technological knowledge, right? It's like that isolated little sphere. Like, it's like, okay, that's, I guess, maybe how they, you know, uh, convince themselves that this is important. It's like, hey, I'm developing technological knowledge for teachers who may not have it, right? And so this is how I'm going to do that by just walking through you know, a ton of different technologies for, um, for teachers. But like you said, w- there's always been technology in classroom settings. There's always been there. Like it's, you know, going back to, you know, chalkboards, going back to, you know, I don't know, what, what were the paddles that they used to use this little, like, you know, there's actually, um, the New York Times ha- did this, like uh, a, uh, they had, all of the different technologies that have been used in classrooms. They did this like picture. It was like yeah. an, like a mag- New York times Sunday magazine or something where they had like this, you know, chronology of all of the different, you know, technologies that have been used in classrooms over the years, which is pretty right. cool, you yeah. know, but it shows that like, Hey, you know, now we're using things to plug into the wall, right? That's, that's the critical difference. You know, yeah. that's just it. That's it. Yeah. And, and yeah, I think, uh, the the idea you know this this goes back to this question of like the integrated knowledge right like so the t t pack idea is that all these things are integrated together right so you have to have the technology knowledge and the pedagogical knowledge and the content knowledge all together to make good decisions about the use of these tools like that's the fundamental argument um and then the weird thing is then 
that what that spawns is, well, let's, let's teach them all these things sort of independently of their context. Yeah. Right. And so it's ironic that the, that the attempt, what the attempt was, was to say, actually, you can't just teach them Excel in a, in a, uh, you know, in a technology class because it's not in context. So then what you do is you, you teach them Excel, but you give them an example of how they can use it in a classroom. Um, but you still teach them Excel and then next week you teach them PowerPoint and then next week you teach them Flipgrid and then next week you teach them whatever, right? You know, Google Docs. Um, so um, so the, that's for me also the irony is, is they're saying like, you got you to stay at the center of the bullseye where all the complexity is. But the way you do that is to pull out and talk about all these different individual cells. Um, and then the student has to do the hard work of the integration in context. And it's like, well, that that seems like you're abdicating your responsibility and you're running against your own um, construction of knowledge in this case. Well, I think what one of the interesting things has happened over the last, I say maybe three or four years is that what has happened is it's shifted from a way of understanding teacher knowledge to becoming in itself a standalone integration model framework. And that to me is, I I think is, is worrisome. Right mm-hmm. to me, because um, what 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 happened? In, I don't know. Maybe two thousand nine. Uh, this this uh, I, I always struggle with his name. Putadora, uh, uh, Ruben Putadora, um, introduced this thing called the Sammer model. Right, the oh. Sammer model. So the Sammer model uh, talks about um, that. There's four different levels of technology mm-hmm. integration, and and it was so devoid of content. So this, the, the levels are substitution, augmentation, modification, and redefinition. Um, and so, and it's a hierarchy, right? At, at the beginning, is. Su- substitution is just like, okay, something that we would typically do without technology. Now we're going to do it with technology, yeah. right? So before we'd have our students write papers, now we're going to use it, have them do it in, you know, in Microsoft Word. Or a voila. blog or whatever. Right. Oh, no, a blog is, is much higher. Because, oh, is it? Okay. So oh, it is. Because now we're- Oh, I it, get why. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because it's changing the audience, right? Yeah. So- um, so this is where the hierarchy comes in. So then like, so the SAMR model just became the dominant technology integration framework because it was so simplistic. Right. And, yeah. and people were, um, really running to it because they, they were like, look, we can help people understand technology integration and that idea of TPAC. Right. But then the, I think some of the TPAC people were like, well, hold on. TPAC itself could be a framework. And and seeing that maybe SAMR was, I mean, it has, SAMR, ha, I have lots of problems with SAMR. I mean, I have mm-hmm. lots of problems with SAMR. And I've blogged about this um, on a, uh, several occasions. Uh, and so if you're interested, in, you know, I'll put <laughs> that in the show notes. Um, but I think what's, what's happened is that TPAC just started saying, okay, look, you know, because the SAMR model is so devoid of content and, and really devoid of pedagogy too. It doesn't really talk about pedagogy at all. It's so focused on technology that the TPAC people were like, well, we can help to, we can help bridge some of those gaps. Yep. Right. And, and so it's, it's now becoming a tech in itself, a technology and like, Hey, you've got to consider. And I, I see these sort of like, you know, uh, graphics in which they're like, well, are you developing pedagogical knowledge with your students? Are, are you, I mean, or what, not pedagogical knowledge, uh, content knowledge. How are you building content knowledge? You know, what pedagogy, you know, are you bringing into it? And so it's like, it's like, ah, uh, come on, you know? Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. And I think, I think that may be a good time to tran- uh, transition into just saying, like, we're not, I don't think we're going to deep dive much more into this, but but TPAC not today, not today. Maybe, maybe there'll be a part three in the future, but TPAC began a new movement, which was up until then, it was the sort of deconstruction of pedagogical content knowledge into smaller pieces. TPAC now said, well, no, you can not only go into the onion, you can add layers to the outside of the onion. So they said, Oh, now there's technological pedagogical content knowledge. And this led to spatial technical or spatial pedagogical content knowledge and geospatial content. And I I don't know what were there others. I know I stole your thunder there, but geospatial. No, no, no. 
<clears throat> no, the geospatial is the big one, but I think that I've, I've been to conferences where other ones have been discussed, um, specifically like comp- uh, computational thinking and computer oh, science. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like there's some work that's being done around that because, you know, I, I think that the more that um, we kind of like, and this is what you're saying, that uh, because this, these environments are so complex, right? These are the the actual practice of teaching and teaching our content is so complex that what is happening is these models become more and more complex because they're trying to you know better describe it which is it's it's an effort that i think is for naught right yeah. it's and yeah and yeah. and so you know we're going to see more and more of these i i suspect as time goes on because you know it is not becoming less complex at all you know right. it is yeah and i think you know going i sort of previewed this but i think um and this might be the thing that we could talk about if we're going to do another episode on this but but if you think if we do an analogy to science like pedagogical content knowledge and what happened with it over those years that it happened, um, you know, from the eighties into the early two thousands and, and onward into today, the, the sort of atomization part was literally that, like, it was very similar to the, to the periodic table, right? It was like, well, we're yeah. going to break it down into these component parts and there's going to be groups. Like these are all around curriculum and these are all around learner attributes and these are all whatever. And, but within that, there's all these other components to that. So there was this sense of like, we're going to atomize this model and create the periodic table of pedagogical content knowledge. Um, and I, and I think TPAC does that too. It just adds, I don't know what it adds extra extra rows or columns or maybe whole other periodic tables to this list of, of elements that are, that are in the system. Um, but I want to contrast that to a lot of the work that's happened in science over the last certainly 20 years um, and more, more and more intensely all the time, which is about the idea that many things in science are systems and those systems are complicated and can't actually be very well understood by looking at the individual parts because really where the where this the phenomenon exists is in the interaction with all of these parts simultaneously and so so these ideas uh, for me that is analogous to practice versus you know um content knowledge right yeah. or knowledge because knowledge yeah. is about trying to characterize all these individual atoms of that make the knowledge up. And practice is about, look, in practice, all those things are happening simultaneously. And they're very difficult, if not impossible, to pull apart. And they're certainly impossible to pull apart outside of the context of the practice. Because then all these things change, right? Like what matters changes. And so, um, so I think that's, for me, that's the analogy that I would make um, between science and, and these, these ideas in, in teaching or in learning and thinking about teaching. So, yeah, I, I think that's a, a really good way of framing it. Um, I think what would be beneficial, Scott, if you could put together some sort of really fancy graphic for us oh, to ha- see. Yeah, uh, I have that. Yeah. Okay. That'd be great. Thank okay. You. So maybe like a model is what you're a saying. A model of that, the system would be, would be okay. fantastic. Yeah, I mean, if it could throw in some, you know, some Venn diagrams would be awesome. Thank maybe you. some arrows. Can I have arrows in there or not? Uh, it, you have to have arrows. Well, you don't. If you have the bullseye, uh, I don't think they have arrows. Maybe they do. I don't, I yeah. haven't looked at that model lately. So, yeah. <sighs> yeah. I, I think, I think that a systems approach is uh, a better way of uh, understanding classroom settings and 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 student learning and teaching and it's just it's just such a complex difficult job of helping students learn that you know putting putting these i don't know reducing it to these like circles or reducing it down to these like you know pithy little things are it's really it makes it like like the SAMR model. People loved it, they, yep. and I think people still love it because it's like, oh man, wow! And it and if you if if you're at home listening to this and you want to Google the SAMR model, just go to the images on Google and look at all of the really awesome graphics that people have created to help people understand the SAMR model. It is wild. It is wild how it is. Um, the one of the dominant frameworks and i I don't see its utility in in helping people um integrate technology and uh tpax is sort of same way um so yeah but i think all these speak to this fundamental need that i think humans have that has 
that's evolutionary, right? Which is that we need to put things in categories. And when we put things in categories that, that make sense to us, then we suddenly think not not just that those categories are useful, but that those categories are real. Right. <laughs> and that's where we yeah. get ourselves into problems, right? And uh, obviously this includes things like race, but it includes all sorts of things. And this idea that like, once you have a heuristic for dividing up the world, then you can just walk around dividing up the world and it will always be true. <clears throat> and I think that's where you get yourself into trouble, right? You know, again, we've talked about things like Howard Gardner's multiple intelligences and what, what oh, his, yeah. his attempt to sort of characterize the rich complexity of what learning is got turned into, you know, a heuristic and a, and a little, you know, grid for determining which kids are which kind of learners or whatever it got turned into. Right. And, and I think this is the problem with articulating um, these things is that without nuance and without understanding underlying principles and all this other stuff, they get turned into blunt tools that, that just get used. Right. So they just, they really do just become like a hammer that just gets used over and over, even when what you're trying to do is, you know, put screws in or whatever, right. That where a hammer actually does damage. Um, but it's like, no, I've got a hammer and I'm going to hammer this thing, even though it's going to destroy the thing that I'm trying to, to work on. Um, yeah. yeah. All roads lead to hammers. That's, that's well, the- that's, I mean, you you go with what you know, right? Right. And, and you're I, that master of hammers. Right. I master Scott, of hammers. I have like a, hammers. I have like a belt and I walk around with like 15 mm-hmm. hammers on it just because you never know because you got to have all your tools ready in case, you know, in the context, you got you to gotta have that ball-peen hammer just in case you need it. <laughs> I'm just saying. All right. That I think it would be a really good transition point for us to get into yeah. joys. Yeah. <laughs> and can I talk about my hammers or should I pick you, something else? You could pick whatever you want. But yeah, I think thank, it's your thank turn you, to, brother. I appreciate to, that. To start, to start that. It's, my, it's my turn to start. Sure, this? Oh, okay. Sure. I'm going to not talk about hammers. I'm I'm sorry to disappoint. Maybe I'll save that for a future episode, and I'll I'll have a, I'll have a list of hammers, or maybe I'll I'll build out a website uh, associated with our <laughs> podcast that's just a list of hammers with like pictures that and hammerpedia of their use. Yeah, hammerpedia. Hammerpedia dot science in between dot. <laughs> org because it's right. you know i want it freely available i'm not trying to make money off my hammer knowledge i want to be clear yeah I, my hammer <laughs> knowledge is free it's open source open source hammer Wikipedia. Uh, so all right Whew, that was a nerdy deep dive in it was yes uh, so i have a really simple uh joy but i i i you know i realized it it's a more sometimes i think I, we think about like specific pieces of media or something. And I think those are great. Um, but we've also shared other things that are bigger. Like you've talked about ice cream making and, and, um, I mean, yes, you, you said it in the context of, of an ice cream maker, but that, you know, there are things you, that bring you joy on a sort of regular basis. So this is one of those for me. So, um, so for me, the thing that I'm reminded to say that brings me joy is meditation. So I've been meditating, um, for, I don't know, 12 years, maybe more, um, a long time. Right. Um, and, and my, my practice such as it is, um, and I'm not, I want to be clear. I'm not some like hardcore meditating two hours a day or even an hour a day sort of person. Um, and I'm also not consistent about it, which I think is probably typical of many people who meditate, but, um, but I do find it to be valuable, um, for me. And I think, um, I don't want to be cliche about it. So I'm not, I'm actually not sure why it's valuable to me, which may sound stupid, but, but it's something that, uh, that I do think has, has improved my life and helped me, um, be more present in a lot of ways. Um, and so, you know, if you haven't tried meditation right now that there's a lot of easy ways to get into it, there's tons of apps, probably the two bigger ones are right now are calm and, and headspace, um, there's another one called 10% happier that has, is more sort of educational, has lots of videos and things, but anyway, you don't really need an app. All you really need is a timer on your phone and sit and, and just try to be with yourself. Um, and, and, uh, and, and make time for it. Yeah. And make time for it. And, you know, like I said, I'm not, I'm not devoting huge amounts of time. I'm, t- I'm typically meditating between 10 and 15 minutes a day. Um, on a, on a really good day, I might do 20, um, and, and I sometimes wish I was doing more or try to move that needle a little bit and maybe, maybe that'll be a goal sometime soon, but, 
but I think, you know, it's a simple way to, um, to make small improvement in your life. So meditation, that's my thing that brings me joy this week. That's awesome. I'm a, I'm a big listener to the 10% happier podcast. So that's, that's great. Um, all right. So my joy is, I, you know, in, over the last year, I've talked about uh, my love of Stevie Wonder. I've talked about my mm. uh, uh, Nina Simone. And, you know, so uh, a movie came out, about, I guess, maybe about a week or two ago, uh, The Summer a Summer Soul, The Summer Soul. Um, and this was produced by Questlove. So if you're familiar nice. with yeah, Questlove, who was a student at Millersville. That's that Questlove. Oh, really? Yeah, he was a student at Millersville. Little known so, fact. Little known fact. So. Uh, I get. I guess what happened was um, right around the same time that Woodstock Woodstock happened in 1969, uh, they did a series of concerts in Harlem, um, and they were free. And they were people like BB uh, King, Stevie Wonder, the Staple Singers, uh, Nina Simone, and others. And they recorded all of them. Wow. Someone was video like video, video recorded them. Video recorded all wow. of them with the idea that at some point they were going to make a movie. Yeah. Um, but then Woodstock comes along and just, you know, and that, that the movie Sucked and the, all the album, oxygen out of the room. Right. Exactly. And so these tapes have been sitting there for decades and quest love, you know, tracks them down, works with the, the families to get them, um, you know, able to be published and all this. And, mm-hmm. and then puts together this movie and it is awesome it is awesome to see like a 19 year old stevie wonder just you know rocking it he is awesome and it it is two hours of fun it is um there's some parts that are like difficult because you know it's the time too it's 1969 so it's like you know in in the the heat of all of it right in the heat of you know the vietnam war um in some real serious race uh relation issues going down at this time um you know this is like after martin luther king is assassinated this is after robert kennedy is assassinated so all of the stuff gets talked about in mm-hmm. in the movie because it uh you know Questlove wants to situate this in time it is awesome it is wow. really really good and it's uh streaming on hulu um, or check it out at a, uh, a theater um, if you're you know game for going out to the theater it is awesome i highly recommend it and especially if you're into soul music because if you're a, if you're a fan of you know the fifth dimension they spend some time with the fifth dimension marilyn McCoo. if you're uh wow, you know, right. yeah it is great it is so good uh yeah so two big 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 thumbs up big big thumbs summer. up all right yep. hulu summer of soul. yep check it out cool all right there we are there we are episode 48 science in between Science in between the the other side of the onion, yeah. So, oh, yeah. See, wow. We, we went in and now we went out. So it's the wow, other. other side. Wow, yeah. mind blown, Scott. Mind blown. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's what, that's what, that's I'm what you for. bring. Yeah, yeah. You, you do that. All right, we'll catch you next time. Yep. In between. See you then. <laughs>